Welcome back to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast, and we're on our second season. Today we're going to start talking about the seven deadly sins, and this is going to be an introduction to the seven deadly sins, where we're going to explore what do we mean by sin? What has the church tradition held meant by sin? Why has the church tradition focused on these seven sins in particular? And how might this help us become more wise and more Christ-like? Enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, we are uh, we took a little bit of a hiatus, but we are back, and we're going to talk a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk in the next several weeks about sin, particularly the seven deadly sins. Uh, it might not be something we normally talk about, uh, but given given uh, the time of year, people ha- you've probably already failed in any New Year's resolutions you made a couple weeks ago. And uh, so we want to talk about why you are so bad, or <laughs> you have a tendency to fail at these things, um, sort of. Uh, but we actually want to talk a little bit about why it is that even though we Christians seem to have a clear understanding of, of uh, what is right and what is wrong, or clear, uh, we have a clear list of do's and don'ts, uh, nevertheless, we we often don't feel, we often don't make improvements in our lives. We struggle with sin over and over again. Uh, we continually fail. And so what we want to do is we want to talk a little bit about the idea of the seven dead sins. We're going to be approaching it from a philosophical and a theological perspective. And today we're simply going to talk mainly, Joel's going to be talking about what makes or why the seven deadly sins matter, why we should talk about them. Uh, why do we want to talk about these seven and not talk about the, you know, 150,000 that we can make up and <laughs> about, uh, in our in our own life? So, uh, on that note, I am Travis. I am Joel. And uh, let's talk about the seven deadly sins. So, Joel, uh, what is it? Uh, why don't you, Why don't we start off by talking about what sin is? Uh, is there, is there, uh, do, do we Christians generally have a pretty good, put a pretty good idea of what sins are? That's kind of a complex question. So, <laughs> well, my experience, you know, is that, um, as Christians, we tend to be really focused on our actions, and the a right action is not a sin. A wrong action is a sin. And I don't know how many times I I heard people t- you know talk about the, the 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 Greek word that's translated as sin in the New Testament as hamartia as a missing the mark. And it was kind of like you know explain that that sin is is not hitting the bullseye. That anything less than that is 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 sin. And um, as I've grown older, as I've uh, dug into um, into more reading more of the, the church fathers and and how they thought of what this missing the mark meant, I realized that reducing it to action um, was missing something important. I I think at least. Um, that when the when when this when hamartia was used, it was had a sense of um, being less than what 
you're meant to be um, of, a, of a kind of incompleteness um, that we're not who we're meant to fully become. And so um, acting in a way that's that's short of that is is a reflection of of hamartia. And when we think of it that way, we're, I, I, I know some people's reaction is probably going to be, hold on, hold on. It's not my fault that I'm not perfect yet. I'm, I'm working on it. Well, how, how can you say that I'm, I'm, I'm sinful when, I'm, when it's not my fault? And this is another thing I've, I've learned more about um, in, in studying uh, some of the the, the um, church fathers and some of the great theologians throughout church history that to them, if, if sin is, is this incompleteness, um, then there's, there's different kind of, I don't want to say levels of sin, but different ways we approach sin. Um, on one hand, we approach the, the, the decisions we make, obviously we, you know, we need to talk about those things, but we also need to have a bigger picture about not just making sure I'm, I'm, I'm doing the right action, but how are we working to bring about completeness and fullness in the world, especially in our, in ourselves. Um, and so, you know, in, in fact, Aquinas talks about the, uh, that the limp of a man is, is sin. And, and you're like, hold on. This guy, it's not his fault that he limps. How is that sin? And for Aquinas, Aquinas is going to say, what, what, what I mean by that is it's not the fullness of what God intends things to be. God intends it to be, God intends a, a world, and, and in the new creation, we're going to have a, a world where people don't limp, where, 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 you know, right, where, where wrongs are made right, where, sickness and deformities are healed and so the idea of sin is is something that points to this world not being what it's meant to be both in our decisions and in things that reflect the fallen state of the world okay so that's a very long answer to your short question right right so so the idea is is that so hamartia is the idea of an archer uh, missing missing what they're what they're aiming toward, right? Um, and so, are they still an archer if they're missing all the time? Well, yeah, but they're not they're not what an archer is meant to be. And so, when we sin, uh, it's not that we cease to be human or cease to be whatever, uh, but we are failing to be fully what we're intended to be. Yes. How, so. How is that different from, and I mean, you said a lot about this, right? You, you brought up the idea of the limp of a man, which I think Aquinas makes a distinction between, uh, these, these, this is my language, but sins for which we're culpable and sins for which we're not culpable, right? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. So the limp of a man, it's not like he's being condemned for having, for having a limp. Right. Hey, stop right. limping. Um, whereas there are sins that we, there are uh, injuries that we, that we uh, act upon ourselves, we we cause ourselves, yes. and for that we are culpable. Mm-hmm. So now, how I've been taught from a, from from childhood is that sin is 
Uh, and in fact, you know, this comes up in, in David's psalm about his own sin, right? Against you and you alone have I sinned. Uh, he's speaking to God. Uh, so sin is a breaking, isn't, isn't sin simply a breaking of a law of that God has set in place? How is that different? Is, is that different from what we, what we're talking about here? Um, well, I, I, I think this, this gets to, um, somewhat to some of the stuff we've talked about in previous episodes about, uh, you know, what is the purpose of the law and, and such, but I, I, let me, let me answer your question by not answering your question. Oh, um, so going back to that archer example, you know, so we have an archer who's trying to hit the bullseye and he tries really, really hard to hit the bullseye. And every time he thinks he has it lined up perfectly, but it ends up being about four inches to the left and he's doing everything he can. But every time he thinks he has it lined up, it ends up four inches to the left. Mm-hmm. At what point do we say you're not seeing the bullseye right? You're not seeing things right that you and it keep ending up four inches to the left. The that if you readjust your vision, then you're going to hit the bullseye. Now, when when we talk about you know what David's saying in the psalm. I tend to think of it being more as the archer who is so distracted from seeing what is good, from seeing um, the what what we're meant to be, um, that he's that the, the distraction causes him to just completely miss things. Um, but the the if the law is helps point us to the kind of person that. God wants us to be and, and that it's a reflection of wisdom rather than just these do's and don'ts, um, then, then it, 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 we have sinned against God's law in that we're, we're going against the direction that God's steering us so that we can be the people he wants us to be. Right. That's, that's, uh, you, you hear this a lot. Uh, if you, if you talk to, uh, people who are, who are interested in the old Testament and, and try not to, uh, uh, throw it out. Um, but that Torah, which is always translated law in the new Testament, really law isn't a very good translation simply because our contemporary perspective of what law means is so well legal. Um, right. and that it should probably be better translated something like instruction, uh, or something like that. And so, uh, this isn't about following a list of rules that if you get them all right, you're, you're saved. And if you get them, if you get any of them wrong, you're not saved. It's about failing to be what God has, has instructed us to be. And that instruction of course, begins with creation, right? God created us. He created us with a particular, uh, he created us in his image. And when we fail to live in his image, we fail to be what we're meant to be. And that's, that's what sin is, right. right? So that that fits that uh, that fits nice. Now let me let me let me change subjects a little bit, um, uh, because I want to know why uh, why do we want to talk about these particular sins, right? So let, let me the seven deadly sins. 
translated into English generally. And we're going to have a little talk about what these words mean and whether they're for good translations as we go on. But just generally speaking, uh, pride, envy, uh, sloth, anger, avarice, gluttony, and lust. Um, and uh, I think it, we were, when we were talking before, I said I've mastered, I think, most of these. So, um, <laughs> But, uh, but th- those are the seven, seven deadly sins. Uh, we don't normally, I mean, uh, in, in our, in our discussions about sin, do we, is it helpful to talk about these? Um, the, they seem general. Um, they seem sort of, uh, some of them we don't like, we don't talk about gluttony in the church. That's not something we want to say anything about, <laughs> uh, uh, lust. We, we talk about, uh, pride. We don't know how to talk about, I don't think, um, uh, we don't want to talk too much about avarice because people will stop giving. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It's sloth. There's nobody slothful now. We're all hard workers and we don't want to talk about, about lazy people. I don't know. Uh, that's that it really sloth doesn't necessarily mean laziness. Um, but we'll get to that when we get to talking about it. But so, uh, why, why are we focusing on these? Uh, what's so important about these seven, uh, that we feel like they're called the seven deadly sins. What's so important about these kinds of sins and why should we waste our time talking about them in this, you know, (laughs) fabulous podcast. So, um, there are, are people in the, uh, Christian tradition who have studied these, who, um, say a better way to talk about these would be to call them the seven capital vices, which, Number one, that just doesn't sound as fun as seven deadly sins. Um, but, but I num- think if, if I think if you go to if you go to the nation's capital, these really do they're they're that's where they hang out. <laughs> well, I'm I'm not going to argue with that one, but um, the the sense of of capital actually uh, connects with that. It's it th- those who say that we should call them the seven capital vices say they're capital in that they're the kind of the the head sins or the source sins um, that these are the seven, we could say the seven misperceptions, the seven um, misformed perceptions or types of misformed perceptions that lead to all other sins that when, when we, when we talk about the actions that we do, that when we start tracing it back, we can see that, one of these seven things, or for me, most of the time, it's more than one of the seven things, is is at the source of what what led to that sin. And so, okay. um, a lot of times when we focus on just the actions, what we're kind of doing is we're addressing the symptoms. And yes, you need to address the symptoms, but when you have cancer, you want to be attacking the cancer itself, the source of the symptoms, because that's how you can overcome cancer is not by addressing the symptoms, but by addressing the cancer in the same way, these seven, seven uh, deadly sins, these are the, are the cancer that lead to all other sins and they're going to lead to death, you know, both, well, clearly a spiritual death. And, and so if we want to, if we want to, to work, to, to help make ourselves, 
to help move ourselves in the direction of of who God fully wants us to be, then we need to address the source of the sins, not just or the source of of what leads us to do these actions and not just the actions themselves. Okay, well let's let's talk about that too. So so you brought up the idea, I mean you brought up this idea of perception and misperception. And if anybody's been listening to this podcast, we've talked a lot about perception, uh, the way that value forms perceptions, uh, the way that perception is a perception of value, how that relates to faith and science and anyway, the whole whole nine yards. We've talked a lot about this. Uh, but let's let's bring that up, bring that uh, in here. Um, perception. Uh, you're saying that these are not these aren't sins of action necessarily. That doesn't right. make them that that the the fact that they're sources of our of all the other sins. Uh, it doesn't mean they're particular things that we do that then give rise to other sins. Rather, it's a particular way that we see yes. that gives rise to these other sins. And that, yes. that's why they're sources because they're the way they're the way that we, why is the, if I have a list of rules and do's and don'ts, why does, why should it matter how I see things? Well, you either do it or you don't do it. So, so think of, think of a situation where you have two people, we'll, we'll say two people who, who are well off financially and you have and they both give the same amount of money to charity. However, we find out that one of them does it strictly because it helps them on their taxes. And the other one does it because they believe in the mission of the charity, that they, that they, um, they see the good that the charity does and they want to support that. And, um, frankly, they would, um, they're probably giving to other charities in such a way that, that, um, it's not, that they're not doing it just because this helps on taxes, but because, but the reason they're not giving more is because they're, they're already giving to other charities in such a way that they, that, um, that they're giving is, is well extended. Um, right. I think we would all agree the second person is the person we should emulate um, that the goal should be that we are giving not because it helps us on our taxes or because it makes us feel good about ourselves, but because we believe we see the good these charities are doing and we want, we want to help participate as well. Um, and so in that sense, we have the same action done but done in two different ways, such that one way is a good way, a virtuous way, and the other way is at best neutral. Okay, but but even that analogy might might break down a little bit because why why is the one person given just for their taxes? Like, what are they perceiving? Why is their perception matter? Should we just say, look, you shouldn't just give just to save money on your taxes? You should give also to help people? Isn't that something they should just start caring about? We would hope so. <laughs> so so what, what I'm trying to get, again, this, this relates, again, it relates to what we talked about previously. Um, and, and, and this is, I mean, this is the image you're, you're setting forth, but right. um, what, 
Let me, let me ask another question. Why does perception relate at all to what we care about? Okay. Per, because perception is a reflection – because the way we perceive the world reflects the value we see in the world. And so the the person who's giving for their taxes are they're, – they're, they're, they're giving because – for themselves, basically. Yeah, it's, it's great. It helps someone else. But frankly, if I didn't have to pay taxes, I wouldn't wouldn't be giving. That person sees their wealth as being the good for which they're aiming. And if they and by giving some of it away, they actually help preserve some of their their wealth. And so that's why they do it. The person who's okay. giving because they see the good in the that the charity's doing and all that kind of stuff, they're giving because they they perceive value in what these charities are doing and they recognize that they have means to help enhance that value. Okay, now let me push you one step further because when we talk about perceiving value, I think most of us that, that's that's kind of an abstract idea. Mm -hmm. What what is what is it what is happening within a person when they perceive something of value? So for example, I can look at something and I can be told, hey, that's really valuable. And and I will, you know, I'll say to them, yeah, okay, you know, it's let's say there's a price tag under these. So that I see a banana taped to a wall and they say <laughs> that's worth $120,000. And I'll be like, okay, I am I perceiving value if I look at it and I'm like, uh, okay. I mean, if I could get 120000 out of that, I'd do it, but there's no way I'd ever pay for that. But I've been told it's worth that much. Um, is that perceiving value? So I, given, given our, our culture that we live in, we tend to associate value with a price tag. And, um, and, and so we try to reduce value to monetary value. And that, that's a, a, a dangerous approach, I think. Um, seeing value is seeing goodness in something, at least in the way that I'm, I'm using it. Um, and, and so when, when, we, when I say that the, the, the first man who gives for his taxes, uh, that he sees the value of his own wealth and, and that's his, his focus, that, if you, that when push comes to shove – what it means for something to be good is in to this man is how does it benefit me? Um, what we talk about in, in, in value in the second sense is, is something beyond himself, something um, greater as, as Christians, we would use the, we could use the language of, of um, people created in the image of God that, that we see how this charity helps, people with that image. And so because we recognize the value in the people and the value in what the charity is doing, the person where we give so that the charity can can help enhance and, and better reflect the the image of God in people. Um, okay. So, well, so the idea of perception then, perceiving value, it's, I'm not saying it's a stand-in, but it's almost like saying that you love something. So to perceive value means that there's almost, there's this immediate reaction to it that's positive. So you, yes. I, I hesitate to use the word feeling, but you have a feeling of affection, of love, of drive, a motivation for that thing. So this isn't perceive the perception of a value in terms of like, 
I'm looking at something and I'm seeing an, uh, uh, a dollar sign beside it, or I see a dollar number that it's worth. This is like perceiving something beautiful, something something that 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 drives your your compassion. You, mm-hmm. you see it directly, or you see, you have you have an immediate kind of feeling response to it. So. Perception of value is not like you said. We tend to we tend to talk about value in terms of money because, you know, money will buy you everything, including love, uh, but not not the right kind of love. But uh, but when we're talking about perception of value, you're talking about. I mean, it's almost a stand-in for the word loving something. Y- yes, right? and 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 I think it's also worth noting that this it's not while there's a a kind of feeling involved, it cannot be reduced to just just straight up emotion that if right. you, because you feel that way about something, therefore it has value. That's and I mean, so if we, if we think about to return to the monetary value example, you know, we think about something like art and, you know, I, I think the Mona Lisa is, is estimated to be worth over a billion dollars. Um, oh, wow. And, you know, someone might look at that and just say, it's a painting of a woman kind of smiling. Like, what? what's the big deal? Like, seriously. Right. And, you know, someone who is, who has studied art, who has uh, worked on, on art, who, who loves art, can, can help someone who has no idea about art come to understand why this painting has value and in the same and, and such that we can train ourselves that we we start to feel an emotion of of that we recognize the value and so we feel that feel the value of something when we see it in in art um as we come to as we practice that um that that over time um in the same way when we talk about uh our perceptions of, of value in the world, those are something that can be trained as well and, and often do need to be trained such that we see value that's there. And then when we've practiced this, our emotions should follow that. Our emotions should be connected so that when we when we do see value in the world, we, we feel the value that we see. We, we have that emotional response. But we can't depend just on the emotional response. We need the emotional response plus information is, is too sterile of a word for what I'm trying to communicate. But, um, Torah. but, there, but there's, there's justification of, of the feeling as right. well as the feeling itself, even yeah, if so, we're not thinking about the justification when we have the feeling. Right. And this is, this is why we have, uh, what we might call a list of rules, because those rules are are to direct our perception in a particular sort of way, right? Yes. So, thou shalt not murder, right? Well, that's it's not good enough just not to murder someone, and this is part of what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Let's you have to go, you have to go. You've murdered someone if you if you feel this kind of anger toward them in your heart. What is he saying? He says. The act of killing someone is bad, but you've already gone down that step once your perception is off. Right. Right. When you perceive them as someone that you hate, 
then uh, if you hate someone, then you're perceiving them in a way that it, that is directly connected to the act of murder. It's just that you're not murdering them because you're scared or something, right? You don't want to get in trouble. You're afraid God's watching you or whatever. Um, and so you're going to get punished. Uh, but you're still the kind of you're still you're still perceiving that person as someone worthy of being murdered, you might say. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, so this is so uh, we're, we're coming up on on the end of this, but let's throw this together. So we're going to be talking about the seven deadly sins. Uh, the seven deadly sins are are interesting, partly because they're, they're talking about the not simply about things that we do that are bad. They're talking about perceptions we have of the world that are in error. And and it's also worth saying, and I, I'm stealing this from Rebecca de Young in her book Glittering Vices, but that the seven deadly sins are attempted shortcuts to get at things that are good without having to necessarily um, do the work to that, that that are necessary to have these as actual goods. So it's trying to get right. to, it's trying to shortcut a good and get a perceived good instead of a, the actual good. Right. Which is that, that is a, that's kind of a world changing understanding uh, drawn a little bit from Augustine that, that sin never presents, never has its own good that it offers. It always takes a true good and twists it or gives you a, a kind of an aberrant version of it uh, that's easier to access um, and that's why sin is so attractive because it has this immediate, just like in the title of her book, Glittering Vices, it has this immediate percept. You get this kind of immediate perception of value mm-hmm. and, and it's easy to get to. It's close. Uh, you can just reach out and take it. Uh, whereas, uh, the truly good things are often hidden under layers of difficulty <laughs> and we just see the difficulty of getting there rather than the, the value of the thing itself. Right. Um, so so we're going to talk about perception. Uh, we're talking about the seven, de- seven deadly sins as kinds of perception. And of course, we're going to be bringing up uh, kind of the opposite. And, and what do we do to modify our perceptions? Because we have the people who say, or we have this tendency to want to just obey, just have a law because I don't have to worry about my perceptions. So I don't have to worry about the subjective feelings and all that kind of stuff. And then you have those who are like, if it, I don't know if anybody actually thinks this really, but people say it in Disney movies and stuff. Follow your heart. If it feels good, do it, blah, 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 blah. Both of those have elements of the truth because it really is ultimately about trying to get our hearts to trying to get ourselves to perceive the value directly so that we do indeed love the good, mm-hmm. but we're not there yet. Uh, and so we need the law. We need the rules. We need the guidance, the, the teaching to help under help us understand where the value in fact lies. Um, and seven deadly sins are about misshaped perceptions, malformed perceptions, so that we're consistently missing the mark. And so we're consistently failing to become what God has called us to be, um, that God is, in fact, acting to create us to become. Um, and uh, so this might transform a little bit of the way that we think about sin. Um, I would dare say it's this is significantly different than what I felt I was learning as I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, but for that very reason, I think it'll be pretty interesting. And we get to talk a little bit about the nature of perception and value, which is just a fascinating topic to me. And how do we transform our values? What are some practical things we can do? Uh, how do these sins sneak into the church and sneak into our society and present themselves as beautiful, good things? Uh, uh, and 
how can we how can we see that transform things in our lives uh, uh, through you know what are the practices we can do and so on and so forth. That's what we're going to talk about. And given that uh, Joel and I are both saints, uh, that the church just hasn't recognized us yet, uh, we are perfect for leading this leading this kind of discussion. It, so, it, may, it may be more accurate to say that we are perfect for leading this discussion because of our uh, experience with, with these misperceptions. Yes. Yeah. Let's not talk too much about that, though. Uh, anyway, so uh, we need to end. Uh, in the next episode, we'll be talking a little bit about pride and vainglory, whether they're even the same thing and uh, why that matters. Uh, but for this episode, th- thanks for uh, listening. Uh, I'm Travis. I'm Joel. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, blogs, and information on events related to apologetics and the life of the mind for believers, check out tacticalfaith.com and consider supporting us with both your prayers and that extra money you have lying around. God bless you.